Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, February 17th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. Let's start with today's weather. Today will be not as cold, breezy in the p.m., uh, with a high of 39 degrees. Tonight will be a starlit sky with a low of 18 degrees. Saturday there will be plenty of sunshine with a high of 41 degrees. And now we switch over to local and state news stories. House bill proposes high standards for carbon dioxide capture pipelines. Caleb McCullough reports from Des Moines. Carbon dioxide pipelines would face large hurdles to being greenlit in Iowa under a bill proposed by a group of House Republicans. It would require pipeline companies to obtain 90% of the miles along their proposed route through voluntary easements through being, before being granted eminent domain authority. It also would block the Iowa Utilities Board from granting a permit to a pipeline company until a federal regulator has laid out new safety guidelines for carbon pipelines. The bill, which is co-sponsored by 22 House Republicans, including Speaker Pat Grassley, looks to address concerns from landowners along the more than 1,500 miles of carbon dioxide pipeline that three companies have proposed in the state. Other provisions in the bill, which will be introduced Monday, include the Iowa Utilities Board could not grant a permit for a CO2 pipeline unless it is in compliance with all relevant local zoning ordinances. CO2 pipeline companies must have successfully acquired all other state permits before being granted a permit in Iowa. CO2 pipeline companies would be required to give regular progress reports on easement acquisitions. Landowners would have more opportunity for compensation from eminent domain and options to challenge violations of restoration standards. Speaking with reporters on Thursday, Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said the inspiration for the bill comes from opposition to using eminent domain to build private to build the privately owned projects. Holt said eminent domain should be used only for essential government services. The 90% threshold was established in part on recommendation from the Iowa Farm Bureau, Holt said, and because it's a number he thinks House Republicans can broadly support. I have an issue with other people's property being taken for what is an economic development project, and I think that's where we confuse public use for public benefit, he said. Last year, the House passed a bill that put a one-year pause on new permits for the projects, but the proposal failed in the Senate. Landowners and activists who oppose the use of eminent domain have been asking lawmakers to pass a stronger measure that would remove the power of eminent domain entirely from CO2 pipelines. Jess Mazauer, Conservation Program Coordinator for the Iowa Chapter of the Sierra Club, said she thinks that 90% threshold does not go far enough. I'm glad that they are taking it seriously, but we really need to have the strongest thing possible, not just put a band-aid on it, Mazauer said. She also would like to see the limit at 90% of parcels rather than miles, so that smaller landowners aren't disadvantaged over large landowners. Democrats have said they would support legislation that bolsters landowner rights and ensures pipelines are safe. We're going to want to look at any piece of legislation to see that landowner rights are protected, to make sure that people have a say, 
in how their land is used and that if we're using eminent domain, public good is a part of that conversation, House Democratic leader Jennifer Confer said on Thursday. Speaking to reporters on Thursday, Governor Kim Reynolds did not say whether she would support or oppose the measure, but she emphasized the importance of the pipelines to the ethanol industry as a key part of the decision. I'm sure there's areas where we can tweak and make it better, but we just need to make sure that we're having an open and honest conversation about what the consequences could be moving forward, Reynolds said. Three proposed pipeline projects are in the process of requesting approval from the Iowa Utilities Board for construction across the state. Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Carbon Express would build 680 miles of pipeline concentrated in the northern and western parts of the state. Wolf Carbon Solutions Pipeline would cover four counties in eastern Iowa. Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway would stretch for 900 miles from the northwest to the southeast corner of the state, with offshoots along the way. The pipelines will shuttle carbon dioxide emitted from ethanol plants to reservoirs deep underground in other states to, in order to meet certain low-carbon standards, take advantage of federal tax credits, and improve the profitability of Iowa's ethanol industry. According to a study commissioned by the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, Iowa could lose 75% of its ethanol plants if the pipelines do not move forward. In a statement, Summit spokesperson Jesse Harris said the company has received voluntary easements from 1,075 Iowa landowners along the route, accounting for 67% of the proposed route. Harris said the projects would be vital to Iowa's economy and the ethanol industry would lose $10 billion a year without them. A full two years after we announced our carbon capture project, we remain hopeful that the legislature will not change the regulatory rules in the middle of the game, particularly with the overwhelming level of support we have among Iowa landowners, he said. Wolf Carbon Solutions has not signaled an intent to use eminent domain for its project, and a spokesperson said the company is not planning on using it. A spokesperson for Navigator said the company does not see any changes needed to the permitting process. Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican from Sioux Center, and Republican, pardon me, and Representative Tom Janieri, a Republican from Lamar's, have introduced bills that would further limit CO2 pipelines, including a bill that entirely repeals eminent domain authority for the projects. The Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, a division of the Department of Transportation, sets safety, tra- sets safety standards for CO2 pipelines. The agency is in the process of reviewing its rules in response to a pipeline burst in Satardia, Mississippi. Those rules likely won't be ready for at least a year. (coughs) And Holt said he wants to hold off on permitting new projects until the regulations are finalized. Our understanding is that there are new safety guidelines coming out within the next 12 to 18 months, and so we're concerned about waiting until those new safety guidelines come out, based upon some of the things that have happened recently in the pipelines, Holt said district offers its initial contract proposals. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. The Sioux City School District presented its opening proposals on Thursday for contract negotiations with the unions representing their classroom teachers. 
the district presented its opening proposal for contract negotiations with the Sioux City Education Association and the Sioux City Education Support Personnel Association for the 2023-28 through 28 master contracts. The two unions presented their proposals last week. For the SEEA, the school district proposes a 1.29% increase to the base salary and a $575 increase to longevity pay. The percentage increase would result in a $490 base pay increase from $37,966 to $38,456. SEEA proposed a 6.6% base salary increase and an 800 increase to longevity pay. The percentage increase would result in a $2,506 base pay increase from $37,966 to $40,472. For SCESPA, the school district proposes a $0.50 an hour increase and no changes to longevity. SCESPA proposed a $1.95 an hour increase, and the addition of two new longevity pay categories. Five years would give a $25 monthly increase, and 10 years would give a $50 increase. Under the state law, the opening proposal from employee unions and the response from the district are open to the public. Subsequent bargaining sessions are held behind closed doors. Superintendent Rod Earlywine said the contract is not personal, it's business, but he will listen to the unions and be respectful while expecting the same from them. We won't agree on everything, but we will come to an agreement, he said. The SCEA has step increases in its contract that give a base salary increase for every additional year of service. For example, a teacher in the SEEA who worked this year as a first-year teacher with a bachelor's degree would currently receive $43,961. Next year, their salary will increase to $45,480. School Board President Dan Greenwell states this results in a guaranteed 1.57% increase to salary costs overall. Including that base increase, the longevity pay asks, and the guaranteed $105 TSS increase, Greenwell states the overall financial impacts for the opening proposals <coughs> are an 8.21% increase from the SCEA proposal and a 3.25% increase from the district proposal. Governor Kim Reynolds has approved a 3% increase to school funding, leaving a funding gap in both proposals the district would have to fill. Because the unions and district are negotiating the full master contract this year, they can make language changes and other policy changes to the contract. While the SCEA union is asking for a variety of changes, including increases to substitute pay and supplemental pay, changes to sick leave, personnel time and bereavement, increased preparation time, and an additional holiday, the district is mostly making slight changes to the contract to fit current practices and removing gendered pronouns. One change Gomez pointed out in their proposal is the removal of language in the credit for experience. If a teacher applies to the district and has previously served as a substitute in the district, they can be credited for the experience and move to an appropriate step in the salary schedule. 
Gomez said removing certain language allows the district to place people in the right step increases and the current language restricts them. If an employee requests to be released from their contract early, they are currently responsible for $135 from the last paycheck for the cost to find a replacement. The district is proposing increasing it to $1,000, which Gomez said is standard across the rest of the state. Other changes include adding a girls' assistant wrestling coach to the pay schedule and changing the contract work days to match the new hour-based school year schedule. In the proposal to SEESPA, the district also made a variety of slight changes to remove gendered language and changes to fit current practices. Other changes include changing the pay structure and adding language that if a SE, pardon me, SCESPA employee coaches, they need to clock out of their SCESPA position before coaching. Police chief charged with stalking ex-girlfriend. Nick Heitrich reports from Kingsley, Iowa. Kingsley's police chief was arrested Wednesday on suspicion of stalking his ex-girlfriend and using his position to access information about her and her new boyfriend. James Dunn, 54, was arrested Wednesday at his Kingsley home by Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Agents and booked into the Plymouth County Jail on three counts of falsely obtaining criminal intelligence data, all Class D felonies, and misdemeanor charges of non-felonious misconduct in office and stalking. He remained in custody Thursday morning and bond was set at $15,000. Kingsley Mayor Rick Bowl said Dunn has been placed on administrative leave. It's not been decided if the leave will be paid, and further action may be taken once city officials learn more. It's undetermined at this time. It got dropped on me yesterday afternoon, Bull said. According to a complaint filed in Plymouth County District Court, Dunn had lived with the woman in Sioux City until she ended their 18-month relationship in November and began seeing another man who lives in Hinton, Iowa. Dunn began a, became aware of the new relationship in January after seeing the man's vehicle leaving the woman's home in the early morning hours. Earlier this month, the complaint said, Dunn followed or searched for his ex-girlfriend in Hinton and saw her car parked in front of her boyfriend's home. Dunn used Kingsley Police Department computers for his own personal purpose to search law enforcement databases for information about his ex-girlfriend, her boyfriend, and the boyfriend's roommate. The woman asked Dunn to stop contacting her and her family and acquaintances on February 3rd. According to the complaint, Dunn left an anonymous letter that included descriptions of his sex life with the woman taped to her boyfriend's front door on February 6th and also mailed the boyfriend's roommate a similar letter. In the letters, Dunn described watching his ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend telling them he knew they had gone to Olive Garden in Sioux City the night before. The woman again told Dunn not to contact her. On Sunday, the complaint said Dunn contacted the woman's mother, telling her she had cheated on him and her new boyfriend had a criminal history and was on probation. The woman contacted Hinton police on Monday and said she was afraid of Dunn. She told authorities Dunn told her he had Hinton police following her boyfriend. She also told police Dunn was armed at all times and had threatened suicide twice in the past. Hinton sought DCI assistance to investigate the woman's complaint on Monday, and the investigation is ongoing, the DCI said in a news release. 
On Thursday morning, a judge issued a no-contact order prohibiting Dunn from contacting the woman. Dunn was hired as Kingsley's police chief on February 1, 2022, after previously serving as a reserve officer, Bull said. Bull said he had never received any complaints from Kingsley residents about Dunn's performance. With Dunn now on leave, Kingsley is left with one full-time officer and a reserve officer on duty. Bull said he's spoken with the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office to help cover the town, and other reserve officers also will fill in. Dunn is the second Kingsley police chief to run into trouble with the law in recent years. Joseph Hoover was arrested in July 2019 on a domestic abuse charge and later resigned. He pleaded guilty in June 2020 to one count of domestic abuse assault, a serious misdemeanor, and received (coughs) a deferred judgment and was placed on probation. And now these local news briefs. Sioux City Man Gets Probation for Robbery From Sioux City A Sioux City man charged with robbing two women at gunpoint has been placed on probation. District Judge Jeffrey Neary on Wednesday suspended a 10-year prison sentence and placed Kimo Levy on four years probation. Levy, 27, had pleaded guilty in December in Woodbury County District Court to first-degree theft, which was omitted from first-degree robbery as part of a plea agreement. Charges of secondary theft and possession of a firearm by a domestic abuser were dismissed. <coughs> Levy and Jaquan McLeod were charged with the July 6th robbery of two women in an apartment in the 3100 block of Transit Avenue. McLeod has admitted to blocking a bedroom door while Levi entered the room, threatened the women with a handgun, and stole a cell phone and a purse. Police later located McLeod and Levy and found the women's property in a vehicle Levy had been driving. Police also found a 9mm handgun that had been reported stolen. McLeod, 27, pleaded guilty in December to first-degree theft and is scheduled to be sentenced in March. (coughs) Man sentenced for molesting children (coughs) from Sioux City. A Sioux City man was sentenced Wednesday to 20 years in prison for repeatedly molesting at least two children for several years. Juventino Salazar Peña, 66, pleaded guilty in Woodbury County District Court to two accounts of third-degree sexual abuse. A charge of second-degree sexual abuse was dismissed as part of a plea agreement. In his plea, Salazar Peña admitted molesting the first child from age 6 to 9 from December 2009 through December 2013. Court documents said the abuse occurred approximately 30 to 40 times. A second child was molested several times from age 9 to 13, beginning in November 2015 and lasting through November 2020. Salazar Pena was initially charged with molesting a third child, age 10, from February 2020 until January 2022. Until, according to court documents, the child took a cell phone picture of Salazar Pena performing the sexual abuse. The child disclosed the abuse to adults in January, and the other two children did so soon after. (coughs) The abuse was reported to police, but when they went to question Salazar Pena, he had emptied his house and fled the area. An arrest warrant was issued, and he was arrested in May. And finally, legislative town hall set for February 25th in Sioux City. 
Next Saturday, February 25th, the League of Women Voters of Sioux City will hold its first legislative town hall of the calendar year. The local League of Women Voters chapter is holding the event at the Sioux City Public Museum in conjunction with the NAACP Sioux City branch. It is slated to begin at 10 a.m. and will give members of the public an opportunity to ask questions of their local elected officials. Legislators will be sharing their priorities for the 2023 session at the state capitol in Des Moines, according to a press release from the League of Women Voters. Anyone who can't attend in person will be able to watch the event via a live stream on the League of Women Voters Facebook page, League of Women Voters of Sioux City. The League of Women Voters was slated to have an event in January, but it was canceled due to a winter storm. On Saturday, March 25th, the League of Women Voters is set to hold a town hall sponsored by Inclusive Sioux City and Siouxland Cares. And now these stories in national and world news. <clears throat> Election probe grand jury believes witnesses lied. Kate Brumbach reports from Atlanta. A special grand jury investigating efforts by then-President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia says it believes one or more witnesses committed perjury and urged prosecutors to bring charges. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis should seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling, according to portions of the special grand jury's final report released Thursday. Those sections are silent on key details, including who the panel believes committed perjury and what other specific charges should be pursued. Still, it's the first time the grand juror's recommendations for criminal charges in the case have been made public. It's also a reminder of the intensifying legal challenges facing Trump as he ramps up his third White House bid. He is also under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice for holding classified documents at his Florida estate. Trump, <coughs> pardon me. Trump never testified before the special grand jury, meaning he is not among those who could have perjured themselves. But the report doesn't foreclose the possibility of other charges, and the case still poses particular challenges for Trump, in part because his actions in Georgia were so public. Trump and his allies made false claims of widespread voter fraud and berated Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Governor Brian Kemp for not acting to overturn his narrow loss to President Joe Biden in the state. Willis said from the beginning of the investigation two years ago that she was interested in a January 2, 2021 phone call in which Trump suggested to Raffensperger that he could find the votes needed to overturn his loss in the state. All I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, Trump said during that call, because we won the state. Trump repeatedly said his call with Raffensperger was perfect, and he told the Associated Press last month that he felt very confident he would not be indicted. In a statement Thursday, he continued to assert he did absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, he claimed on his social media platform Truth Social, the release had given him total exoneration, though it did no such thing, and portions having to do with recommended charges are still secret. State and federal officials, including Trump's attorney general, said the election was secure and there was no evidence of significant fraud. After hearing extensive testimony on the issue, the special grand jury agreed in a unanimous vote 
that there was no widespread fraud in Georgia's election. The grand jury, which Willis requested to aid her investigation, was seated in May and submitted its report to Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney on December 15. The panel does not have the power to issue indictments. Instead, its report contains recommendations for Willis, who will decide whether to seek one or more indictments from a regular grand jury. Over the course of about seven months, the special grand jurors heard from 75 witnesses, among them Trump allies including former New York mayor and Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani and U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Top Georgia officials such as Raffensperger and Kemp also appeared before the panel. Graham told reporters Thursday that he has not been contacted by authorities regarding his testimony. I am confident I testified openly and honestly, he said. The partial release of the grand jury's report was ordered Monday by McBurney, who oversaw the special grand jury. During a hearing last month, prosecutors urged him not to release the report until they decide on charges, while a coalition of media organizations, including the Associated Press, pushed for the entire report to be made public immediately. McBurney wrote in his Monday order that it's not appropriate to release the full report now because it's important to protect the due process rights of people for whom the grand jury recommended charges. While there were relatively few details in Thursday's release, it provides insight into the panel's process. The report's introduction says an overwhelming majority of the information the grand jury received was delivered in person under oath. It noted no one on the panel was an election law expert or criminal lawyer. Based on witnesses called to testify before the special grand jury, it is clear that Willis is focusing on several areas. Those include phone calls by Trump and others to Georgia officials in the wake of the 2020 election, a group of 16 Georgia Republicans who signed a certificate in December 2020 falsely stating that Trump had won the state and that they were the state's duly elected and qualified electors. False allegations of election fraud made during meetings of state legislators at the Georgia Capitol in December 2020. The copying of data and software from election equipment in rural Coffee County by a computer forensics team hired by Trump allies. Alleged attempts to pressure Fulton County elections worker Ruby Freeman into falsely confessing to election fraud. And finally, the abrupt resignation of the U.S. Attorney in Atlanta in January 2021. Deputies suspended in Nichols' case didn't keep body cams on. Adrian Sainz reports from Memphis, Tennessee. Two sheriff's deputies who had been suspended for five days for their role in the arrest of Tyree Nichols failed to keep their body cameras activated after they went to the location where Nichols had been beaten by five Memphis police officers, officials said late Wednesday. Shelby County Sheriff's Office deputies Jeremy Watkins and John Tavius Bowers each violated multiple policies after they reported to the location of Nichols' violent arrest on January 7th, Sheriff Floyd Bonner said in a statement. Nichols fled a traffic stop but was caught near his home by Memphis Police Department officers who punched him, kicked him, and hit him with a baton, police video footage and other documents showed. Video released by the city showed several officers standing around as Nichols struggled with serious injuries while sitting on the ground propped up against a police car. 
Nichols was taken to a hospital in an ambulance that left the location of the beating 27 minutes after emergency medical technicians arrived, authorities have said. Nichols died at a hospital on January 10th. Five Memphis officers accused of beating Nichols were fired and charged with second-degree murder. One other Memphis officer was fired but not charged for his role in the traffic stop that preceded the beating. The sheriff's office previously said two deputies who went to the scene after Nichols was beaten had been disciplined and were under investigation, but had not divulged further details or their names. Reports released by the sheriff's office late Wednesday showed Bowers and Watkins were suspended for five days without pay for failing to keep their body and in-car video cameras turned on while they were at the arrest location. The deputies also did not notify dispatch or their supervisor, the report showed. Watkins also did not report in his daily log that he went to the arrest location, according to the reports. Bonner said the sheriff's office does not believe the deputies will face criminal charges. Bowers and Watkins have been Shelby County deputies since June 2021, Bonner said. Both suspensions began Wednesday. Biden seeks rules on aerial objects. President directs new team to review policies after four shootdowns. From Washington, President Joe Biden said Thursday the U.S. is developing sharper rules to track, monitor, and potentially shoot down unknown aerial objects after three weeks of drama sparked by the discovery of a suspected Chinese spy balloon transiting much of the country. The president directed National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to lead an interagency team to review U.S. procedures after the U.S. shot down the Chinese balloon, as well as three other objects that Biden said the U.S. now believes were most likely benign objects launched by private companies or research institutions. While not expressing the regret for downing the three still unidentified objects, Biden said he hopes the new rules will help distinguish between those that are likely to pose safety and security risks that necessitate action and those that do not. Make no mistake, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down, he added, repeating the legal justification cited for the downings, that the objects, flying between 20,000 and 40,000 feet, posed a remote risk to civilian planes. The downing of the Chinese surveillance craft was the first known peacetime shootdown of an unauthorized object in U.S. airspace, a feat repeated three times a week later. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, February 17th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries. <coughs> Margaret A. Knudsen, 98, of Moville, Iowa, passed away on Tuesday, February 14th, at a Sioux City hospital. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday at the Holly Springs Bible Fellowship of Hornick, with the pastor Jim Thomas officiating. Burial will be at the Greenwood Cemetery of Pearson, Iowa. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service, starting at 10 a.m. at the church. The Nicholas D. Jensen Funeral Home of Moville is in charge of the arrangements. Online condolences can be made at nicholasdjensenfh.com. Margaret Arlene Falkender was born on January 16, 1925, in rural Pearson, to Ray Falkender and Ethel Hardy Falkender. Margaret graduated from Pearson High School. She married Vern Knudsen on June 6, 1944. 
the couple made their first home on a farm in rural Kingsley, Iowa. Margaret worked as a linotype operator for the Pearson Progress and later for the Moville Record when the two papers merged. Vern and Margaret moved to Moville, and Margaret continued to work for the record until the paper went digital. She then worked for many years as a cook at Woodbury Central. Margaret loved her pets. There was usually a cat or two and a small dog around the house, which she spoiled. She enjoyed gardening and flowers. Margaret loved to visit the greenhouses in the spring and load up with annuals to plant outside the house. She had a beautiful rose garden featuring several varieties of roses. Indoors, she collected African violets of every color and type. All of her life, she was a member of the Pearson Christian Church. When the church closed, she attended Holly Springs Bible Fellowship Church. Thomas Everett Landholm, best known as Tom, was born July 8, 1950, in Oakland, to James and Nancy Peden Landholm. Tom passed away on Sunday, February 12th, at a Sioux City hospital. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday at St. Paul United Methodist Church in South Sioux City. Visitation will be from 3 to 5 p.m. on Sunday at St. Paul United Methodist Church. Interment will be at Oakland Cemetery in Oakland. Arrangements are with Pelin Funeral Services, Oakland. Tom was raised in Oakland, graduating from Oakland High School in 1968. Tom met Joy in 1968 in Oakland, and they were married on July 25, 1970, in Rosalie, Nebraska. Tom and Joy have three children together, Frank, Chris, and Andrew. <coughs> Tom worked at IBP Tyson, starting as a ditch digger, and worked his way up to chief project manager when he retired after 50 years. Tom loved to travel, go to NASCAR races, and Vikings games with his family. Memorials may be directed to St. Paul United Methodist Church, at 2003 A Street, South Sioux City, Nebraska, 68776. Jerry R. Bumstead, 83, of Mapleton, died Tuesday, February 14th. Services will be February 17th at 10.30 a.m., St. John's United Methodist Church in Mapleton. Burial will follow the services at Mount Hope Cemetery in Mapleton with military rites. Visitation will be February 16th from 5 to 7 p.m., at Armstrong Van Houten Funeral Home in Mapleton. Rita A. Schlotman, 46, of Sioux City, died Tuesday, February 14th. Services will be at will be on February 25th at 10 a.m. at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City at 4125 Orleans Avenue. Burial will be at Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. Curtis Eugene Kesters, that's K-O-E-S-T-E-R-S, Sr., 79, of Sioux City, passed away Sunday, February 12th, at a local hospital. Services will be held at 4 p.m. on Saturday at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Burial will be at a later date at Dakota City Cemetery. Arrangements are under the direction of Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Curtis was born October 4, 1943, in Wall Lake, South Dakota, the son of William and Elizabeth Jenny Myers Kesters. Curtis graduated from St. Boniface School and attended the seminary. He was drafted into the United States Army and served from 1966 to 68. Curtis worked at Metz Bank 
pardon me, Metz Baking, Zenith Midstep Services, and Sioux City Animal Control before owning and operating Animal Service Company, which helped Sioux City, South Sioux City, and other small towns in Nebraska. He retired from Animal Service in 1993. After a few years, he went to work for Walmart in South Sioux City, where he greeted many customers, and they were all considered friends. He married Carolyn Brown in November of 1969, and the couple later divorced in 1990. Curtis married Stella Laren on February 14, 1999, after being together for seven years. Curtis is survived by his wife, Stella Kesters, children Donna Sue Brown, Bruce Joseph Rader, Diana Lynn Rader, Kenneth Bruce Rader II, Pamela Jean and her husband Craig Anderson, Curtis Eugene Kesters II, Nikita Borg, Jared and her husband and Alex Larson, Trigger James, pardon me, Tigger James Kesters, and Dallin Dwayne Kesters, 23 grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, and loved by many. He was preceded in death by his parents. Paul C. Engel, 95, of Sioux City, died on Friday, February 10th, at Pioneer Valley Assisted Living Facility in Sergeant Bluff. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church. Burial will be in Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service at the church. Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Paul was born on September 15, 1927, in Sioux City, the son of William and Lucille O'Brien Engel. Paul attended Trinity High School in Sioux City, graduating in 1945. Later that year, he joined the United States Navy, serving until the end of World War II, and then as a reservist until his honorable discharge in 1951. Paul was united in marriage to Dolores M. Gish, on November 24, 1947, in Livermore, Iowa. Together they raised six children. The family resided in Sioux City. They remained devoted to each other for 72 years until her death in March 2020. Paul was a longtime tile contractor, a tremendous craftsman. He was always honest and hardworking. His professional handiwork exists throughout the city. Missed, remembered, and forever loved. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation in memory of Paul Engel to Trinity Heights Queen of Peace at 2511 33rd Street in Sioux City, Iowa, 51108 for a family memorial. <laughs> Clarissa Boots Schumann, 87, of Ida Grove, died Friday, February 10th. Services will be February 20th at 10.30 a.m. at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove. Burial will follow the services at Sacred Heart Catholic Cemetery in Ida Grove. Visitation will be February 19th from 3 to 5 p.m. at Christensen Van Houten Funeral Home of Ida Grove. Ricky F. Rick Pritchard, 65, was carried to the arms of our Lord Monday, February 13th, while sleeping beside his wife Tracy, that he always called Doll. He had just finished a lovely weekend with his family, running errands and hanging out with his wife, lifting weights and playing their ritualistic never-ending games of pool with his two sons, Trevor and Eric, then watching the Super Bowl. His death was sudden and unexpected, and leaves a hole in his family that will never be filled. Services will be at 4 p.m. on Friday at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City at 4125 Orleans Avenue with Father Michael 
or Belding, officiating. Family visitation will be from 3 p.m. until the service. There will be a celebration of Rick's life following the service with food and drink at his cousin Pete's at, on 20th Street at 3118J Avenue in Sioux City. Rick was born on November 8, 1957, to Ted Pritchard and Sharon Welch. He grew up in Shelby, Montana, and in Sioux City, running around playing with all his many cousins and friends. They all stayed over at their grandparents, Ma and Dad Pritchard's house, as often as they could. Their neighborhood was their playground, and they had so much fun being rambunctious kids, playing pranks, playing cards, enjoying life, and being together. Rick attended Riverside Junior High, West High School, finishing his education at Job Corp in Nemo, South Dakota. His best friend was Rick Tunsink. They were inseparable, worked together, and stayed friends as adults. <clears throat> in 1976, Rick met his future wife, Tracy Youngworth. He was her high school sweetheart. They were married on December 25, 1977, raising two sons, Trevor and Eric. He taught his boys how to fish, shoot, drive their go-kart and four-wheeler, how to play foosball and pool, camping almost every weekend during their youth with one of his nephews, Scott Pritchard or Cody Hansen, in tow. Family vacations were a must, and both boys worked with him at one time or another. Most recently, his passion has been fishing, watching sports, playing pool at home, and shooting at the firing range. Rare was the time that one or both of his boys were not at home on the weekend spending time with their dad. He enjoyed telling jokes and stories and making people laugh. He was a stand-up guy and will be missed by too many people to mention. Rick spent many years building microwave towers and owned Central Tower. Later, he was an implementation engineer on cell sites for Sprint, and most currently was working as a millwright on ethanol and packing plants for Austin Stewart at SBI Mechanical and Brian Holloway at Raveling Inc. And finally, Michael J. Mike Price, 67, of Sioux City, passed away on Sunday, February 12th, at a local hospital. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. Online condolences may be directed to MeyerBrosChapels.com. Mike Price was a funny man. He was a man who would step on barking spiders, who should have been a rock star, who let kids think he was Santa Claus at Christmas time, a man who ate breakfast and watched Doctor Who on Sunday mornings while sitting on his motorcycle parked in the living room. Mike Price was a man who left an impression. He was a man who would flip you off in traffic, a man many would call fierce and imposing, a man who would make his opinion known, who would tell it like it is, and whose bad side you never dared to be on. Mike Price was a solid man. He was a man who could lift heavy objects, who worked hard every single day of his life, who did what needed done no matter how impossible that thing was. He was due north. He carried the weight of the world on his shoulders and never once shrugged. Mike Price was a shelter. He was a man who secretly saved kittens, a man who brought children and adults alike into his home and cared for them, a man who harbored the sick, lonely, and desperate, a man who gave endlessly to any and everyone who needed him. Mike Price was a loving man. He loved everyone in his life, whether they deserved it or not. He found the good in people and held on to it. 
He was a generous man who would share his wallet, his home, his happiness, and his heart, and would always be there to do it again and again, no doubt. Mike Price is family. Blood-related or not, so many people lived in this man's heart. He is Uncle Mike to far more people than he could ever be related. He is the best friend to anyone who knew him. He is a brother, a father to three girls, a grandfather, and a husband to a wife who adored him without reason or limit. He will always be our family. Mike attended Central High School from 1968 to 71. He worked at Rose Services until the time of his passing. He traveled all over the U.S. but called Sioux City his home. He was a jack-of-all-trades and a renaissance man, and he loved riding and working on his motorcycles. Mike was an audiophile and loved listening to and collecting vinyl records. He was an avid practitioner of holistic medicine and enjoyed fishing, camping, and spending time with his family and many friends. And now we move on to local and state sports. Knights versus Warriors for state birth. Sioux Center Unity Girls to meet in region finals. Dave Driesen reports from Sioux Center. Two state-ranked girls basketball teams from neighboring Sioux City cities, Sioux County cities, will compete for a berth in the state tournament. Number seven ranked Sioux Center, which is at 17 and five, will host number 12 Unity Christian, which is at 18 and five, in the Class 3A Region 6 Regional Finals at 7 p.m. Saturday. The Warriors edged Spirit Lake 50-47 to in a regional semifinal game in Sioux Center Wednesday night. The Knights advanced with a 64-49 to semifinal win over number 15 West Lyon in Orange City. In the only meeting between the two teams this season, Sioux Center raced past the Unity at 71-46 to on January 21st in Sioux Center. A trio of Sioux Center players scored in double figures in Wednesday night's win over Spirit Lake. Senior Willow Bleeker and sophomore McKaylin Vanderwall had 11 points each, and sophomore Marco Schweetman added 10 points. Spirit Lake, which ended its season with a 11-12 record, was led by Taylor Schneider's 16 points. Bleeker is Sioux Center's leading scorer and rebounder, with averages of 11.9 points and 4.6 boards per contest. Unity, which qualified for last year's Class 3A state tournament, is led by returning first-team All-State guard Gracie Schoenhoven, the school's all-time leading scorer. The senior came into the West Lion game averaging 23.6 points, 7.2 rebounds, and 5.2 assists per game. In the win over the Wildcats Wednesday, Schoenhoven was held to 12 points, but three of her teammates also scored in double figures. Jade Nothmeyer led with 15, Cassidy Deckers had 12, and Jaylee Woodstra had 11. In Class 3A Region 1 semifinal contest Wednesday, Cherokee lost 52-44 to Algona. The remaining sports stories, uh, local and state sports stories, are local, pardon me, are uh, high school wrestling. Ethan DeLeon, Ty Koadam, advance. Senior wrestlers earn semifinal berths at state attorney. Dave Driesen reports from Des Moines. Ty Koadam recalled what his father told him about competing at the state wrestling tournament. Dad always says the most dangerous kid here is a senior who has nothing to lose. Coatham said of his father, Clint Coatham, the head coach at Sergeant Bluff Luton, and I really took that to heart this year, going out there that way and laying it all on the line. 
a four-year qualifier at the state tournament, Ty Kodum is still looking for his first state title. The senior kept that dream alive Thursday, advancing to the 145-pound Class 2A semifinals in the 148-weight class. Kodum won by fall over Monticello's Cale Hansen in the quarterfinals, avoiding an earlier exit from the championship like he experienced in previous years. Every time I've been here, always been in that blood round, which is you lose and you go home, he said. When I walked out there today, I told myself, you're not getting in that position again. You're going to move on to the semis. You're going to be in the top six. You're going to have a shot at the title. So that's what we did. Ethan DeLeon, another Metro Sioux City wrestler, seeking his first state title in his last year of eligibility, also moved on to Friday's Class 2A semifinals at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. DeLeon, the number two seed at 170 pounds, remained undefeated after winning a 7-2 decision over Ben Tengi of New Hampton Turkey Valley in the quarterfinals Thursday. DeLeon said he could tell early on Tengi and the NHTV coaches had scouted him, contributed to him starting out the match a little slow. I tried to get to my ankle pick a couple times and he knew it was coming, DeLeon said. Throughout the match, I adjusted. I was able to string together a couple takedowns and score from other positions. In the semifinals Friday, DeLeon will face number 14 seed Heston Johnson of Roland Story. I'm just going to focus on having fun and scoring points, DeLeon said of his next match. DeLeon's teammate, Nico Venturi, who's at 36-7, and lost his quarterfinal match Thursday. Braden Bonsack of Union, LaPorte City, won a major decision over the Crusader freshman, who remains in contention for a state medal. Ty Codem's younger brother, Bo, also dropped a quarterfinal match Thursday. The sophomore lost by a 6-0 decision to Nick Cock of North Fayette Valley. A third SBL quarterfinalist, Ethan Scogland, also fell short in his quarterfinal match Thursday, losing by fall to Gavin Jensen of Williamsburg at 120 pounds. Scogland, Bo Kogman, and three other Warriors remain in contention for medals. Seniors Jace Curry at 106 pounds, Xavion Ellington at 170, and Garrett McHugh at 182 won two consolation matches each Thursday, advancing to more wrestlebacks Friday. Three more SBNL wrestlers, Dalton Van Wy at 126 pounds, Hunter Steffens 152, and Sean Zimmerman at 285, bowed out of the tournament with their second losses Thursday. <laughs> Heelan's Ben Walsh at 120 pounds and Sir Brandon Watts at 160 also were eliminated with their second losses of the tournament. Watts, a top medal contender heading into the tournament, lost by a medical forfeit. Jarrett Ruse of Sheldon South O'Brien was the third journal circulation area wrestler to advance to Friday's Class 2A semifinals. Ruse raised his record to 42 nothing, with a fall over Zach Edelmund of Dyke New Hartford in the 182-pound quarterfinals Thursday. Another Northwest Iowa wrestler, Jace Mulder of Boyden Hull, Rock Valley, lost in the 182 quarterfinals in a fall to top seed C.J. Walrath of Notre Dame, Burlington.
which is at 54 and nothing. Ruse, the number two seed, will face third seeded Brody Sampson, who is at 50 and two, of Ballard in the semifinals Friday. Heading into Friday's matches, Sergeant Bluff Luton stood in third place in the team standings with 50.5 points, behind leader Osage's 92.5 and second place West Delaware's 55.5. Here are results. Pardon. Hogue Huckfelt make 3A quarters. East Cleveland drops first match at State Wrestling Tourney. Dave Dreesen reports from Des Moines. Aiden Hogue and Logan Huckfelt wrestled Thursday night for spots in the Class 3A state semifinals. Hogue, a senior from Lamars, and Huckfelt, a junior from Spencer, advanced to the quarterfinals after winning opening matches Wednesday at the Iowa High School Athletic Association's traditional state tournament. In last year's state tournament, Huckfelt edged Hogue 4-3 in the 285-pound quarterfinals. This season, Hogue dropped down a weight to 220. The number 5 seed at 220 at the Class 3A state tournament, Hogue won by 15-4 major decision over Caden Weatherell of Waverly Shell Rock Wednesday. Boosting his record to 43-1, Hogue will meet number 4 seed Jason Heidebrand of Denison Schleiswig in the quarterfinals Thursday night. Huckfeld won his first state medal last season placing third with a 29-7 mark. The number five seed at 285 in this week's state tournament, the junior won by fall over Dalton Hearn of Urbandale in the round of 16 Wednesday. <coughs> Huckfelt, who improved to 35-3, will square off with number four seed Kyler Hall of Ames in the quarterfinals Thursday. Spencer qualified eight wrestlers for the state tournament and Lamar sent six. All remain alive for medals, with a chance to win top eight places through Wrestlebacks Thursday and into the weekend. Besides Huckfelt, two Tigers posted wins in the first round. First round Wednesday. At 113 pounds, Gabe Cothran, who is at 29-12, and 12, won by fall over Ashton Grace of Ottumwa at 41-6, and six, but then dropped a major decision to Aiden Serrano of Carlisle. Spencer's Wyatt Haying, who's at 26 and 14, won by major decision over C.J. Kemmler of Epworth, Western Dubuque, in the first round at 120, but then lost by fall to Braden Park of Linmar. At 195 pounds, Camden Fuerhelm, 35 and 11, won by technical fall over Jack Cahill of Ankeny Centennial in the first round Wednesday but then lost by fall to North Scott's A.J. Peterson. East freshman Danny Cleveland, the only wrestler from Sioux City's three public high schools to qualify for the state tournament, narrowly lost his opening match Wednesday. Indianola's Jensen Dyer won 10-8 in sudden victory in the 113-pound match. Cleveland received a bye for the first consolation round and remains in medal contention with wrestlebacks ahead. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, February 17th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening. (music) ¶¶